Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, enough help? The government will give families of the victims who are Canadian citizens or permanent residents $25,000 per victim to assist with their immediate needs, such as funeral arrangements and travel. Canada gives $25,000 to the families of each victim for immediate help. But what about more answers? Does Canada have any leverage over Iran to get families faster access to the remains of loved ones? And what about punishment for those responsible? The Prime Minister's Parliamentary Secretary, Omar Al-Gabra, is here with some answers. Then, pollster Shachi Kuro has new numbers on Canadians' reaction to the downing of the plane. And then, can he win? Former Cabinet Minister Peter McKay is officially in the Conservative leadership race, but can he win over a party with a Western base? And would he steer that party back to its progressive Conservative roots? Former Conservative leadership candidate Kevin O'Leary, former Director of Communications for Stephen Harper, Andrew McDougall, and the former War Room Director for Doug Ford, Melissa Lansman, all join us for an all-star debate. And then former Harper Cabinet Minister Chris Alexander weighs in on the scrum. Plus, pipeline win? We are all of the view to dismiss the appeal for the unanimous reasons of the Court of Appeal for British Columbia. A big victory for the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion as Canada's top court throws out British Columbia's court challenge. But is the battle over the pipeline really over? Alberta's Energy Minister Sonia Savage and the interim Green Party leader Joanne Roberts join us for both sides. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. He was amazing. I stand up here a week after this horrible tragedy and I still can't believe it. I feel like I'm dreaming. But I know that if I was dreaming and that if he woke me up, he'd tell me that it's gonna be okay. And it will be. That's 13-year-old Ryan Poorjum, incredibly moving. He lost his father on Flight 752, shot down in Iran. Now, he's just one of the many grieving family members who will now be getting $25,000 in immediate aid from the Canadian government, as the Prime Minister announced on Friday. But the government still expects Iran to compensate on a much larger level. This was just for immediate needs like travel and expenses. The Prime Minister also said the first remains of some Canadian victims could be coming home as early as today. But when will all the remains be back? And what about access to the black boxes? What leverage does Canada have to punish Iran? Let's find out. Joining me now is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Prime Minister and the lead on this file, Omar Al-Gabra. Thank you for joining us today. The Prime Minister announced this $25,000 in assistance for the families of the victims. How did the government come up with this number? Uh, hi, Evan. It's good to be on your show. Uh, look, the Prime Minister and I and, and uh, others have been meeting with families across the country. We've been hearing directly from them about the uh, stories of their loved ones, but also about the challenges that they're facing immediately in the aftermath of this disaster. And it uh, had become clear to us uh, and to the Prime Minister uh, that there is an immediate need for assistance and support. 
because there are a lot of unexpected uh, expenses that they're encountering, whether it's uh, upcoming travel or funerals, uh, etc. So uh, it was the Prime Minister's uh, decision to offer assistance in the, uh, immediately to alleviate some of those uh, challenges. Mr. Algabra, the government's been using the term compensation, but I'm just trying to, is that even the right term? This sounds like emergency assistance for the families. This is not replacing compensation that these families may get from either one Iran or two Ukraine airlines. Is that right? I think you uh, you make a good point, uh, Evan. Um, um, this is probably just the uh, technical term that uh, perhaps government uses uh, frequently, but it's not intended by all means to replace the uh, compensation that the Iranian government is uh, responsible for. So you're right. Uh, this is an immediate type of support or assistance to family to help them uh, deal with the immediate cost. Has your government come up with a figure that, that your government would like Iran to compensate the victims? Uh, Evan, uh, we expect that this has been dealt, will be dealt with at uh, international standards and uh, uh, through an investigation. So no, we're uh, right now we're not going to preempt uh, that number. Uh, don't forget there are also four other countries uh, who are grieving with us. So this is going to be uh, a, a discussion between the five countries and Iran uh, uh, to get there. But first, we need. Uh, an accountable and verifiable and an independent investigation uh, to get to the bottom of what happened and also a, a sense of compensation for the families. But, uh, but no, we have not come up with a number because we want to go through the process. Okay, but the, 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 the fact is that though the Iranians keep talking about being open and talking about an investigation, they've, they've lied before. It's a very difficult regime to trust. They've been foot dragging in terms of access to the black boxes, in terms of all the families getting access to the remains. Uh, how, what leverage does your government have on Iran right now? Uh, look, Evan, I'm not pretending that Iran does not have its own uh, unique set of challenges. Um, however, uh, we have been making some progress. Um, and, uh, just so you and your audience know, uh, there are about 30 of Canadians or permanent residents' uh, uh, remains have been buried in, uh, in Iran. Uh, there are two uh, being repatriated uh, this weekend uh, or the coming days. So uh, we're, we're seeing progress. Um, that does not mean that we should not be vigilant and careful and watching carefully every step. Um, that's why we also need a verifiable, independent investigation. We shouldn't just take uh, Iran's word for things. We need to make sure that everything that we're, they're doing is verifiable and, and, and independently uh, verified. But one thing you could do, look, I, I, this regime, this government in Iran is not, doesn't respond to international pressure historically. Maybe they will now, but hope isn't necessarily a good strategy. One thing Canada might be able to do is reestablish some consular relations. Relations were cut off back in 2012. Your government promised to reopen them. Uh, the reason you, to have a, a consul there is to help the families over the next, not just this month, but over the next year as they're going to move back and forth to try to get over this horrific tragedy and get some accountability. Is your government now ready to reestablish some consular relations with Iran? Look, right now we are 
solely focused on supporting the families. And we have consular team on the ground in Iran that is providing assistance to the families. We need to make sure that the families' voices and needs are respected, are addressed. Uh, we will look into uh, what else we can do. But sorry, for with all due respect, on. this would help the families. The families need somebody on the ground there. I know you've got consular services there, but that's at the, you know, the Iranians at the benevolence of this regime. But if you had uh, a permanent representative there, these families over the next months and years would have help. This would help the families. Are you opening to do that? Open to doing that now? Look, I mean, uh, you won't uh, uh, hear me push back on the idea that had we had a consulate there or a consular officials there on the ground, uh, the process would have been easier. I'm not going to push back against that. But right now, what we have is we have a situation, a tragic situation. We have deployed uh, uh, 10 officials on the ground, consular officials, to work with families. We are providing the assistance we can. And, and I think this, this conversation that you and I are having is worthy of continuing. But for now, let's focus on assisting the families. And we have teams on the ground that are working closely okay. uh, day by day with but the families. How long can they stay there is the question. Uh, how long can, for example, the consular services or the investigators, how long will Iran let them stay? As long as needed, we have Iran's assurances. Uh, you know, they gave them the visas uh, in short orders, uh, and 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 they are present there. So uh, we are given assurances that. And by the way, number one uh, of the five demands that the international uh, response uh, 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 grieving nations had come up with is making sure that consular officials have unfettered access to families uh, in order to support them. Uh, last thing, I mean, on the other side, you've got the conservatives saying, get tougher. You've got to have sanctions now. They're not going to comply on the black boxes. They're not going to comply to an investigation to hold the people who shot those missiles and took that plane down accountability unless you get more firm with Iran. Is your government ready at all to uh, have sanctions to list the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as a terrorist organization that the liberals voted for two years ago? Look, our stance has been very firm and clear on Iran before the disaster and during the disaster. Uh, right now, though, this, I mean, this, again, this conversation is worthy of continuing to have. Uh, but right now, our focus is on assisting the families. And, and that's what the prime minister has tasked the government to do. Uh, that's what we have been asked by the families, by the way. That's what the families are asking us to do. So that's what we're focused on. And we need to get that job done so we can be by the side of those families. I got to leave it there. It's a long and complex process ahead and a very painful one for the families. Omar Al-Gabra, I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Evan. Coming up on the program, after months of speculation, Peter McKay is officially in the race to replace Andrew Scheer. But can he win? And what does that party need to do to reinvent itself? Kevin O'Leary, Melissa Lanzman, and Andrew McDougall will weigh in on those questions next. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, Peter McKay is in, but can he win? 
That means first winning the leadership race and then winning a general election, and those are two very different propositions. Can the former leader of the progressive Conservative Party win over the Western base of the current Conservative Party? And how would he fare against rivals like Pierre Polyever, Rana Ambrose, and Jean Charest? And what about former Prime Minister Stephen Harper? Is he about to get more heavily involved in this leadership race? Let's bring in our expert panel of Conservative commentators to find out. Kevin O'Leary, of course, ran for the Conservative leadership in 2017. You see him on Shark Tank. Melissa Lansman was the War Room Director for Doug Ford's provincial election campaign. And Andrew McDougall was the former Communications Director for Stephen Harper. Great to have all of you here. And I'll start with you, Kevin O'Leary. Uh, you've been in this race before. You ran the last time. What do you make of this race and Peter McKay's decision to run? Well, first of all, the mechanics of this race are going to be different because the big mistake we made in the last leadership race is we entered it with 14 candidates, which was a disaster in trying to commu communicate the message of the party or any individual mandate or platform. This time, the rules are much tougher. You've got to put up a lot more money, 200,000. You have to get 1,000 signatures from multiple jurisdictions and geographies. And as a result, we'll cull the herd dramatically. I'm hoping we only end up with seven so that we can quickly get down to five when the debate hits. It's a much shorter, compressed uh, race, which is very important. And I think we've all learned from mistakes made last time. And can McKay win? Absolutely. You know, this is not about Quebec. People keep saying, oh, it depends what happens in Quebec. Quebec is the Florida of Canada. No, it isn't. This is about the 905. We got decimated in the last election when women just did not approve of the last leader. We only got a 26 to 32 percent approval rating. We cannot let that happen again. And McKay, a father of three young children, is well approved by women. He'll score in the 50 to 65 approval rate in the 905 and we will win at least a minority. The country is begging for mercy from Trudeau. He is a disaster as a manager. I can't tell you enough as an investor of how he has just gutted the country. Uh, Andrew, your take on that, on Peter McKay and that analysis. Well, I think that the one thing that Peter McKay has that maybe some of the others don't is that ability to speak across the coalition. If you look at his historical role in creating the modern Conservative Party of Canada, I think he still gets a lot of credit uh, for doing that in 2003 amongst the more Western uh, populist element of the base or the social conservative element of the base, while, as Kevin notes, having a, a bit of appeal in all the places that the, the party was going backwards in the last election. You know, the party grew uh, in all the places it didn't need to win more and went backwards in places like Toronto, as Kevin noticed, uh, and other big cities where they need to grow. So I think Peter McKay is certainly somebody who could at least start that conversation again about could I vote conservative? He doesn't have any of that that kind of icky feel to him that maybe some of the other contenders might have had, uh, and certainly the same problems that Andrew Scheer had in connecting with a big piece of the voter base. Uh, what about if uh, Ron Ambrose or Pierre Polyever, we know Polyever's going to run Melissa. What, what do you make of that, a McKay versus Polyever? What does that say about the party at East, West, progressive or not progressive? What, how does it break down? Look, I don't think it's a cakewalk for anybody to walk across the finish line and have this thing. I think for for both of these and, and, and people like Rana and even people like Share, you're seeing a lot of heavyweights enter the race. And that suggests one thing, is that all four of these people believe that they can be prime minister after, uh, after the next election, which I'm not sure was the case in 2007, uh, given Trudeau's uh, overwhelming majority. 
What it does say about, uh, about, the, about each of the contenders is that they're going to have to grow beyond their base. And that's, uh, you know, for Mr. McKay, that needs to be beyond uh, Atlantic Canada. Uh, French is going to be an issue for him. For Polyevra, it's going to be about making sure that he can get the other side of that coalition, the one that sort of Peter has in hand uh, when it comes to progressive voters to convince them, hey, I'm electable. I can do, uh, I can do what uh, Andrew Scheer didn't do in the 905 or in some of the big cities. And for Rana, I think, uh, you know, she, she straddles sort of that, uh, that happy medium. I think that there's a lot of people that are wanting her to come into the race to be that, uh, to be that savior. Uh, what kind of party does it have to be, Kevin O'Leary? Last time they lost Quebec, they lost Ontario, they won out west. Uh, what are the changes would you recommend as a former uh, leadership candidate? Inclusiveness. You know, we've already made a decision as a Canadian society where we stand on rights of people and women's abortion rights and everything else. That cannot be a fulcrum for the Conservative leadership. We have to pass on that. We have to focus on things that matter to Canadians. And, you know, that's what hurt us in the last election. We let an issue that I, I thought we'd put to bed and I thought that Andrew could get over regarding women's rights, and it slaughtered him. I remember two nights or three nights before the election, I was sitting in a law clerk's office and talking to some of the women there. They told me, and I knew we were dead right there, that they would never vote for Sheer ever because if he ever got a majority mandate, they would lose their abortion rights. And to me, that just struck a knife through my heart, and I realized the party had screwed up. He should have been campaigning with Lisa and other women during the last six weeks. He didn't. That will not happen again. So inclusiveness and a message of economic upside, it's always about the economy. And there's lots of problems right now. Our country's very divided. If you go out to Calgary, there's a tumbleweed blowing through there. And here we have, for the first time in history, and I can only thank Trudeau for this, two provinces of the Union want to separate the West in Alberta and Quebec. I mean, what, there's, what kind of a leader does that to a country and decimates its economy? This guy's a loser. We've got to get rid of him. Got to find him a real job somewhere, and that's why we need an election. Yeah, well, I mean, to be fair, the economy's growing a bit, but maybe not. I know this is going to be part of it. What about the role of Stephen Harper, Andrew McDougall? Obviously, you work very closely with him. He's quit the Conservative fund. Was that because of allegations that the fund used money to pay for the private school education of Andrew Shear's kids, or is it, I want to get out of those rules, the restrictions, and I want to get more actively in the race, maybe just to prevent a Jean Charest candidacy? Well, if you believe what you read in the papers, that was certainly what was hinted by people that are close to Mr. Harper, quote unquote. And, and I can see some truth in that. You know, I, I think the one thing the prime minister doesn't like is to not have the full set of information in front of him. And I think with the fund, what, with all the reporting that we've seen around who approved what and, and was it really all legit and who knew what, that he felt he wasn't getting uh, what he needed to do his role properly there. And with respect to Mr. Charest, I, I think the Prime Minister's one consideration that he keeps uh, ahead of all others is how to maintain the unity of the Conservative movement in Canada. Uh, that was his legacy to Canada, was, was birthing a, a party that was able to hold government and hold a government to account and not fall apart when the leader went. And so I think what he sees in Mr. Charest is the antithesis of that movement. Uh, a kind of a return to the bad old days of, of you know, if you say a Brian Mulroney type where, where it was kind of all kind of greasy angles in on, in on questions. And there's questions in, in Quebec about Mr. Charest's conduct, the conduct of his government. And I think uh, Mr. Harper wouldn't want that to, to become the modern Conservative Party of Canada. Is he going to be gunning for him? That, that, that's not his style to do that publicly. Um, but, 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 you know, I, th I think he would fight 
as hard as he could fight to preserve his legacy, which is the modern Conservative Party of Canada. Yeah, which means they're not on each other's Christmas card list. How influential is Stephen Harper right now, Melissa Lonsman? Look, Stephen Harper is uh, the reason of 10 years of, uh, of modern Conservative government. So I, I don't think that discounting him, but this party really does have to figure out what it stands for post-Stephen Harper and what it looks like in terms of vision, in terms of aspiration, in terms of stop stop ceding the issues to the Liberals like environment, like innovation, like the way that we work. And we, we must make sure, the party must make sure that it doesn't get into a conversation between calling off a social conservative wing that is very much needed, respected, and should be respected in this coalition. All right, guys, i got to leave it there. Uh, it's going to be an interesting race. Kevin O'Leary, Melissa Lonsman, Andrew McDougall. Interesting stuff. Thanks so much. All right, coming up, the troubled Trans Mountain expansion project cleared a major hurdle this week. But does this mean the pipeline is unstoppable? Alberta's Energy Minister Sonia Savage and the interim Green Party leader Joanne Roberts join us next to find out. Stay right here with Question Period. The motive is pure. The motive is to protect the environment. The purpose, however, chosen, goes beyond what the authority of the province is. A big win for pipeline advocates after the Supreme Court threw out British Columbia's attempt to quash the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. BC argued that they had the jurisdiction over what actually comes through the pipeline because of the big impact a potential oil spill might have on the environment in their province. But the top court said no. So, does this finally put an end to the legal hurdles for the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, or are there more challenges ahead? Will it make it easier for the federal government to eventually sell the taxpayer-owned pipeline? Let's get both sides to react to this huge decision. We're joined first by Alberta's Energy Minister, Sonia Savage. She's in Calgary. Minister Savage, does this, mean win, does this win mean that pipeline expansions will be built, or do you expect more hurdles? This is a huge win for, for Alberta and a huge win to move the project forward. Um, that We had to win that court case and it was a decisive victory. It was a clear, clear decision from the Supreme Court and fast um, and unanimous. So it clears a big hurdle. There's still a couple of, uh, uh, of court cases out there on the duty to consult. We're pretty certain and pretty confident that the federal government met that duty this time around. Of course, we keep hearing uh, having interference by the United Nations and others, um, you know, butting into our business. But this one removed an enormous hurdle, and I think it was a big victory for for all the men and women in Alberta who work in the oil and gas sector, and for Canadians. The the federal government bought the pipeline because there were so many legal hurdles and protests. Yeah. Now shovels are in the ground. They've won this case. As you say, there's more to come. If they start yeah. looking for a potential buyer, would Alberta be interested in buying the pipeline? Well, I think we what we'd like to see, we'd like to see um, some Indigenous purchase of the pipeline. We'd like to see... Uh, um, and there are several groups in the Indigenous communities who would like to have equity and an ownership stake in the pipeline. So we would be, we've actually set up the Alberta Indigenous Opportunities Corporation to help Indigenous groups uh, fund and be able to participate in projects like this. So that would be our approach, is to encourage uh, transfer into Indigenous people's hands. What's your message to British Columbia who still don't, and the leadership there still don't want this pipeline? 
Well, I think, uh, I think they're pretty, they've said it themselves, they've pretty much uh, exhausted all the tools in their toolbox. I mean, that was a real smackdown from the Supreme Court um, of British Columbia. And there's a real, real uh, decisive case saying that one province is not going to be able to block a project that's been determined to be in the national interest. It was clear it was decisive. Um, I, I think uh, BC needs to, to work for, move forward with issuing permits in a timely manner. They need to continue to work with the federal government right. on, uh, uh, on, on issues around emergency management and emergency response. And I think they're, the, the federal government is putting a lot of effort and a lot of money into making sure right. that this is the safest possible project ever built. So uh, it's time for BC to put their tools down. The majority of British Columbians support the project. All right, I got to leave it there. Uh, Energy Minister in Alberta, Sonia Savage, great to have you on the program. Thank you. Okay, let's get the other side. Is the pipeline fight really over? Joining me now is the interim Green Party leader, Joanne Roberts. Joanne Roberts, great to have you on the program. So Sonia Savage said BC, their, their toolbox is empty. Is there anything now left for BC to stop this pipeline? I don't think the toolbox is empty. I mean, one of the judges said BC reached into the federal toolbox because the provincial toolbox didn't have the right tools. I think we have to go back to when the BC government gave up one of its biggest tools, and that was under Christy Clark and Stephen Harper when they waived the right to a BC environmental assessment. What the BC government could do now is say without that assessment, they cannot go ahead. They could ask that that assessment be done. So there's a tool in their toolbox. But this was about jurisdiction. We saw how quickly the court made a decision. It's saying the federal government can decide whether this pipeline goes into BC. The question of the environmental assessment, I think, is still up in the air. We have four First Nations who are still in court over okay. this. We now have all public money. I think this is still very much in play. Well, they say this puts an end to the argument that this pipeline expansion is federal government's jurisdiction. Now the Supreme Court said you cannot stop it based on what's going inside the pipeline. So doesn't that solidify that this is act pipelines are federal government's jurisdiction end of story? Well, you could stop it if you said what's coming out the other end of the pipeline and whether that is going to affect, for example, the uh, southern resident killer whales. I mean, I think what's running through this pipeline they're saying is federal jurisdiction. I think what we have to now look at is this is not just about what's running through this pipeline, it's what are you going to do when it gets to BC and you have to take it out of the pipeline and put it onto ships to send it overseas. So I. I also think you have to say, is there jurisdiction about the land it goes through? And that's where these four First Nations are saying they have not had proper consultation. Okay, so from your point of view, from the Green Party, from the NDP government in BC, you're saying the fight against this expansion continues? Yes. Yes, it does. Very much so. In fact, I think you'll see a lot of people who will push even harder now that these questions have been cleared up. All right. Do you think this pipeline ever gets built? No, I don't. I, I don't think this pipeline will ever be built. All right, that's fascinating. The pipeline politics and the fight does not end with that Supreme Court decision. Joanne Roberts, I appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. You're quite welcome. Coming up on this program, Canada has now paid money to the families of the victims of the downed plane. But do Canadians want the government to get tougher on Iran, or does the government have the response just right? The scrum is next with pollster Shachi Curl, who has new numbers on these very questions. Stay right here with Question Period.
This is immediate assistance for a range of needs that they might have. Uh, it is not the compensation that we expect uh, will come and should come from Iran. Some immediate help for the 57 Canadian families who lost loved ones when Iran shot down Flight 752. Canada will now give $25,000 to each family to help belay the costs of repatriating the bodies of loved ones and other costs. But there's much more to do. When will Iran actually compensate the victims' families? And what about full access to the black boxes? What about a trial for the perpetrators? Do Canadians really think that Canada should take a harder line with Iran? Let's talk about that and lots more. The Scrum is here this Sunday. Michelle Carbert is a reporter with the Globe and Mail. Stephanie Levitz is a reporter with the Canadian Press. Craig Oliver, our master political journalist and commentator, is back. And our special guest this round is the executive director of the Angus Reid Institute, Shachi Curl. Good morning to all of you. Shachi, you've got new polling out on the government's reaction to the downplaying. What have you found Canadians are thinking? Well, first of all, they really have a sense of cynicism, a sense of doubt as to whether or not themselves, the world, this country, the loved ones of those victims, not just in Canada, but in Ukraine, in Iran, in Sweden, in Britain, where others died, other nationals died, will ever find out what really happened. Uh, already, there is a sense that given Iran has changed its story, it has obfuscated on providing access to the black box, to other elements of the investigation. 50% of Canadians don't think we're ever really going to get to the bottom of what happened. Of course, Evan, that is complicated by the fact that Canada does not have established diplomatic ties with Iran. Those were uh, suspended, ended under the Harper government. But even there, you see a split. Uh, you've got a, a significant number of people, about half, saying, look, we should work with Iran for now to try to find out what happened. But after that, just you know, that curtain, that wall goes right back up. Another 40% actually say this should be an opportunity to try to re-establish ties with mm. the Iranian regime, uh, especially at a time where, you know, we're, we're engaged in this NATO mission and what happens to our troops? Should they stay in the region? Should they be withdrawn from the region? What should the Canadian government do around right. that? And on that, again, Canadians are split. You don't see a lot of consensus. Right. You know, our Canadian government is dealing with the Iranian president, the Iranian foreign minister. Who do we think these guys are? They are part of an elected puppet government. Does anybody really believe they're going to be calling the last shots? Things in Iran are run by the Revolutionary Guards, who are feared killers, uh, and by the Ayatollah and his ilk. Uh, does anyone think that these people are going to uh, tolerate members of a NATO country getting millions of dollars given to them. There's not a chance of that. Uh, despite all the assurances we're getting, they're not reliable assurances. All right, but by the same tone, let, let's talk about what the government did do, Stephanie Levitz, which is uh, on Friday they announced $25,000 in assistance. It's very different than what the compensation from Iran. What have you, have you made of their response thus far? I mean, what more could Canada do at this point? 
reopening the consulate in Tehran is the thing they could do. I mean, the point of this $25,000, right, was an acknowledgement that a lot of these families want to go back to Iran. They want to travel there. They right. want to go and deal with the funerals and the, the personal effects of their loved ones, or they want to bring family members here. You can't do that stuff without a consulate. And the reality is this. This is a process for these families that is not going to resolve itself in six to eight weeks' time. It's going to take months, if not years, for them to deal with the fallout of that. So for, if for no other reason, establish a diplomatic presence in Iran. A consular services is not the same as an ambassador who's going to negotiate a peace treaty. Consular services are about visas, passports, you know, all the things the government says now that it suddenly wants to work on in acknowledgement that people need help. They're still going to need it in six to eight months' time. I think the prime minister in, in the last two weeks has, has looked very prime ministerial on this, getting head of the compensation issue, arranging conversations between himself and his Iranian counterpart at the foreign minister level as well. But I agree with Stephanie that in the longer term, he is going to struggle with this and dealing with it politically. I asked him today, or on Friday, are you going to sanction the Iranian Revolutionary Guard? No direct answer. Are they going to open the consulate? I think the chances of that happening now are even slimmer than they were four years ago when they ran on a campaign to do so and still haven't. Uh, Shach, let me just let, what are you hearing? Because the conservatives are saying sanctions now, a tougher line. There are some who are saying no open consular services right now. In other words, re-engage, which does not mean legitimize the government, but as Stephanie says, means help these families out. What are the politics of that? Well, the politics around it really do sort of run the spectrum. So around the conservatives and conservative supporters, there is a desire to, to keep that hard line, only work with the Iranian regime as long as it has something to do with the investigation on behalf of the families of those 57 Canadian victims. On the left-hand side of the spectrum, you've got NDP voters saying, no, let's, let's work to reestablishing full consular ties. You've got liberal voters saying, well, let's start to warm things up. What's been really interesting, and of course, let, you know, it's not about politics, but then everything is political. This tragedy has certainly given Justin Trudeau the opportunity to look leaderly and be the embodiment of the office of the Prime Minister in a way that is expected of him at this time. And the last week has certainly shown that at least among his base, it is resonating. So you see an right. uptick in approval for Trudeau by eight points, but that's largely driven by people who voted for him in the last election, who are not very happy with his performance, who are now seeing the leader they, they want to see or they were used to seeing and starting to respond to that positively. But, but to the earlier point, this is a long game. There is the aftermath right. of tragedy and then there is what to do and that is a political quagmire. Uh, and, so, and it is one for the Conservatives as well. I mean, Andrew Scheer was awfully slow off the mark on, on this and I'm not saying that you know all politics should rush to address a tragedy, but sort of getting his ducks in a row, having his, his foreign affairs critics and his defense critics put out a statement. He took a while before he sort of on social media, if you believe that, chimed in. And the Conservatives are trying to thread a needle to the excellent point that Craig makes, right, about who is actually running the Iranian government, who is actually in charge here, and what kind of relationships do we actually want to have with these people versus what the Liberals are doing, which is completely distancing themselves and just focusing on the families. And we've seen the some high-level Conservatives in the last few days who are not necessarily MPs, but high-ranking, coming out and actually applauding the Prime Minister for his response to this. So how are they going to push that sanctions message when it doesn't really have much effect? All right. Before I let you go, Craig, I'm going to start with you in a quick go-around, because I know Shachi had a poll on this. Uh, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan may become half-royals, half-duties. They may move to Canada. And the big political question is, will Canada pick up the very expensive, up to $10 million a year, security tab for them? 
Do Canadians want to pick up a security tab for people who may or may not be working for the royal family? Absolutely not. Uh, not if they're going to be living here long term. If they're very, here as visitors, they're protected persons, right. uh, and that's fine. Uh, the, the problem is, uh, he says, uh, they both say, we want to be free of the royalty runaround. Uh, we, we, want, we want to be independent financially. Uh, but still, basically, they want to cash in on their cachet. That's, <laughs> that's, what they, that's what they want to do. And I just don't think that works. The last time anything like this happened, uh, King Edward abdicated uh, for his American divorcee. He ended up a lonely uh, man, uh, uh, isolated from the royal family. I hope that mess doesn't happen here uh, because right. they deserve better. Okay, I got real quick. Well, there, look, there's a lot of sparkle around Markle to, 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 to <laughs> borrow a, a poem there, but ah. the, the answer is that if they're going to live here full time, the question is if they don't want to be royals, then why do we need to pay to treat them like royals? Listen, sure. we're mm. a commonwealth country. There's appeal. They want to live here. They obviously like Victoria and Vancouver Island. So, um, you know, there's a responsibility that comes with that. I, I don't know if we can get out of it as Canadian taxpayers. Yeah, they got one foot out the door real quick, of the, the royal family, but do we have one foot on foot in that bill? <laughs> what are Canadians saying? Okay, so three big takeaways from this week's polling. I've been a hardworking girl this week. First of all, in terms of Meghan and Harry coming here, that is being met with a giant meh on behalf of Canadians. <laughs> I know our friends at eTalk are all aflutter with the coverage. Great, but actually Canadians largely don't care. They unequivocally do not want to pay that security bill or other costs related. And all of this is really uh, bringing to the surface, I think, a larger conversation about the future of Canada as a constitutional monarchy. You know, for the first time, we're starting to see a plurality of Canadians saying, look, we love the Queen. She's been our Queen for 67 years. We adore her. But when her time on this earth comes to an end, there will be a reckoning because 45% of Canadians, that's nearly half, say, guess what? We don't really feel that we want to be part of the British royal family being our head of state for generations and generations and generations to come. And that that is why this whole debate about Meghan and Harry is actually quite a big deal right. in Britain because it needs to be something they need to be paying attention to around the future of the Commonwealth. All right, maybe a royal meh, but I like that. Sparkle with Markle as well. Thanks, Shachi Curl. The rest of the scrum is gonna stick around. All right, coming up, the first big name is now in the race. Former Harper cabinet minister Peter McKay is running to be the next conservative leader. The scrum returns with his former ministerial colleague, Chris Alexander, as our special guest. Stay right here with Question Period. Well, a pipeline may well run through the next federal election, an election that will certainly feature a new conservative leader. Remember, after the Supreme Court unanimously rejected an attempt by B.C. to effectively shut it down, the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion moves closer to getting built, but there's still a lot of obstacles in the way. Will that help or hurt the Liberal government in places like B.C.? And with Peter McKay jumping into the Conservative leadership race, what new ideas does that party need on issues like climate change in order to win? And can Peter McKay beat the likes of, I don't know, a Pierre Polyever or, say, a Ronna Ambrose should she jump into the race? Let's bring back the scrum to find out. Michelle Carbert is back, so is Stephanie Levitz. Craig Oliver's here. Our special guest this round is the former minister and conservative leadership candidate, Chris Alexander. Well, let's talk about uh, leadership, uh, Chris, uh, and Peter McKay. Can he win in places like Quebec? Can he win in places like the West and beat the likes of, let's say, a Pierre Polyevre? 
I, I think it'll be uh, a tough race for all of the candidates. A lot will depend on the policies they put forward, the teams they build. Uh, but Peter McKay has experience that is deeper than anyone we've seen announced so far this time or even in the 2016-17 leadership race. He, was, he held the top jobs in cabinet for almost a decade. He was the leader of the party. Uh, he was at Stephen Harper's side every step of the way in forming this new party and taking it to victory three times. So those are tough credentials to beat. And that has given him a network in all parts of the country that I think will be very, very strong. People are also looking for a, a turn, I think, uh, by both our major parties in Canada back towards the center, towards the real preoccupations of Canada, towards strengthening this country, not dividing it at a time when the world uh, seems off its hinges in some ways. And Peter McKay has the kind of experience to do that. I think the value of Peter McKay also would be that he can hang on to that support in the West that Shear delivered uh, and appeal strongly in the province of Ontario. And he may, you know, he could pick up some seats in the province of Quebec. Uh, it seems to me that if Rana doesn't get into this, and it's almost as if she's changing her mind because you talk to people, they say, yes, she's going, and then uh, later they tell you, no, she's definitely not. Anyway, if she's not into this, I think Peter McKay is the biggest threat. Yeah. I think at this point it's looking like if nobody else major jumps into the race and, you know, Arana Ambrose, Jean Charest, um, it, it could be smooth sailing for Mr. McKay unless somebody really wants to Why, rock even that over, boat. Even over Pierre Polyevra? I think so. I He's, don't know. I mean, because there, there's two parts of a leadership race, right? There's the folks in the party that are electing a leader of the Conservative Party, and there's yeah. the folks in the party who are going after the next Prime Minister, and they're not necessarily always the same thing. Pierre Polyev comes across as a Conservative's Conservative. He's been in the trenches. He's tough. He's brutal. The party needs a lot of an overhaul right now internally in its mechanics, how it's run. We've had this business with the fund, Stephen Harper. Um, and Pierre Polyev perhaps communicates better as the guy who's going to get that done, going to bring the party back to its grassroots voice and vision, whereas Peter McKay, who was in politics a long time, certainly in the trenches, has been in Bay Street for the last few years, and maybe is he as connected to the grassroots, the people who pay the money to show up at conventions, buy the money for leadership races, as you know, he might be as palatable to the rest of the country as Prime Minister. Yeah, and, and Chris, then there's Ron Ambrose to be the leader or not to be the leader. We don't know. Jean Charest may jump in. What would Jean Charest do if he indeed does jump in, or a Ron Ambrose? I think Jean Charest, Peter McKay, and Rana Ambrose all have the potential to bring a lot of new people into the party for the first time or back into the party uh, that they left for, for whatever reason after the 2015-2019 elections. Uh, they are big tent conservatives in different ways. Jean Charest with a strong Quebec base, uh, a more, uh, you know, a 20th century history in the federal conservative party. And Rana having, and Peter both having been leaders and interim leaders of the party, uh, they bring a huge amount to the table. So uh, I honestly think uh, we're only going to see this party come back into office if it grows its membership, if it appeals to Canadians who are turned off by politics. Uh, and those three names that you've mentioned, maybe Peter McKay first and foremost among them, have the chance to, to, to open the door to a new generation uh, of Canadians. Jean Charest is anathema to a lot of conservatives. He's a turncoat has turned his coat back again. They'll never forgive him for that. Um, and uh, a lot of where he went since, he has become so progressive, he just really isn't the party as a lot of them want it to be. 
But he could win in Quebec. I, I would, uh, sure. You know, that, that's the thing, but Steph. Really he could win. I mean, well, could he really win in Quebec? It's not as though his time as premier wasn't un, unchequered, right? It's not as though there's not been things around him for a long time. He has a very checkered political past, which, one might add, might be well-known to the people in Quebec, less well-known, say, to the folks in Alberta, Saskatchewan, British Columbia. You get into a nasty leadership race, all this mud gets thrown around, and, and you know, could he really win it? There's also a lot of discussion about Mr. McKay and Mr. Charest's candidacy and their decision to run being hinged on the others. So now that McKay was the first yeah. one to come out of the gates, is Sheree second-guessing it? That's not what we're hearing right now, but man, if they both ran, that would be a really exciting okay, race. Okay, let me just go, go to pipelines. For sure there's a win for pipeline advocates from the Supreme Court. We all appreciate what happened there. That doesn't mean that this uh, pipeline Trans Mountain expansion is going to get built, Chris Alexander. I, we know all conservative candidates are going to be pro-pipeline. That's, I guess, part of the, part of the ticket. What does it mean, though, on climate change? On that other side of this issue, which has been the, the big issue, do conservatives have to recalibrate their message on that? Well, conservatives need to listen to Canadians. Uh, we've now heard this uh, when we were in office and through two elections that we've lost, that Canadians want to get their energy products to market, to recover them uh, responsibly, to have the cleanest oil and gas sector in the world, and they want us to meet our emissions targets. It's hard to do those things, uh, but it is possible with the right policies to move in that direction faster. Mm. Uh, and I think the, the, the next leader has to embrace all of those imperatives and somehow come up with a, a national consensus right. that takes us towards all of those goals. That's what makes us super fascinating, right? Is because, again, going back to the question of a leadership race versus the federal election. At a leadership race, could the conservative leadership candidates ever sell a carbon tax? Right. Probably not. Could they win government on a carbon tax? Entirely possible. Because, the, you know, as Chris sort of pointed out, in the last election, the vast majority of Canadians did vote in favor of a carbon so tax. So let, let's flip it to the other side, Craig. What about for Justin Trudeau? Now he's got this win. He's still fighting for this pipeline. Does that pose dangers for him in places like British Columbia? Uh, no, I don't think it does, because a lot of people in British Columbia are just as divided as the country is, but there's a lot of support for this pipeline in British Columbia. The biggest recalibration, as you used it, uh, here it involves the Premier. He has used the last tool in his toolbox, if you like. Well, not quite. Uh, yeah, there's he's, still he's got one nowhere more else case. to go. There's he's still got First one more Nations. federal court case, exactly, that could win this. This is the BC Premier. This uh, is the BC Premier, still has one, has one more tool in his toolbox. But I agree with Craig that it's looking pretty empty, and this was definitely a ruling in favor of the Liberal direction on this. My question is how yeah. the Conservatives are going to stand out from the Liberals if they also want to move in the direction of supporting climate change. It, it's finally giving some certainty to this pipeline, which it never had before, uh, and that's very significant. The last word, Steph. I think the indigenous piece of this puzzle, such as it is, is the biggest question, and it's the one with potentially the most implications for not just this pipeline project, but every other single natural resource project that could happen in this country. That's the decision that really matters here, and that's the one that will have more political ramification, I think, than the particular one that we just saw this past week. All right, I got to leave it here. Uh, Chris Alexander, Craig Oliver, Michelle Carbert, Stephanie Levitz. Gosh, lots to do. Thanks so much for all that. Thank all of you for watching. That does it for us today. We will be back here in seven short days, but don't worry, join me tomorrow at 5 p.m. Eastern for more great political debates on CTV's Power Play. Hope to see you then. Take good care.